good to be with you. As you noticed, my family is not with me today. And that's because our beautiful son, Micah, loves to share. And one of the things he loves to share is his germs. And um, we didn't realize that he had picked up um, hand, foot, and mouth disease from childcare because his was very mild. We noticed a little bit of blistering on his thumb, and we thought it was because you know, he sucks his thumbs. And so we just thought, oh, he sucked extra hard last night or something. But we didn't realize that he had this disease. And of course, when he shared his spoon with Daddy, um, Daddy took it willingly. And uh, a few days later, came down with, um, unlike Micah, um, he has blisters all over his hands and feet. Um, and a little bit on his face as well. Um, it spread through saliva and, and things like that. And so it would have been okay as long as he came and didn't touch. I mean, you know, as long as none of you are kissing my husband, it would have been fine. But just to just to be safe and to keep you all uh, healthy, he's quarantined, self-quarantined at home. Um, and so I actually preached for him at Marine this morning and um, here now. But he sends his regards. And, of course, Micah... Um, is perfectly happy and fine, but uh, we thought it'd be best to keep him at home just in case he still decides to share his love with you. Um, and Grandpa's home to take care of him because Roy is um, quarantined from Micah in case Micah doesn't have it. So everyone's kind of kept from each other <laughs> for a little bit. But it's sad because on Wednesday night, Roy thought maybe he had chicken pox because he's never had chicken pox. And when he first saw the little bumps, he thought, oh, no, I have chicken pox. And he was having Bible study with James and Galen or he was supposed to have Bible study with James and um, Galen, but um, Galen like was about to come in, and Roy was like, "I might have chickenpox," and Galen like ran the other way because <laughs> he's about to get married, and that would not be a good thing to have when he's getting married. Um, but it turns out it's not chickenpox. But it was really sad because um, James has had it before, and so James was was there for the Bible study, and then after he left, um, Roy was waiting for me to finish my Bible studies. Um, after he had it with, with three ladies in the front here. Um, and afterwards, uh, I finished with Esther and, and Bronwyn, and it was about 8.30, and he was in one of the rooms there, like in a fetal position, um, trying not to scratch, <laughs> and he was very miserable. And later on, he told me that, you know, it's one thing to be in pain. Pain he can, you know, endure, but he said he feels so like unclean you know he felt like a leper going around like saying unclean unclean and he was like trying not to like touch anything and feeling helpless and I was reflecting on Roy's predicament as I was preparing my sermon today because the sermon is about a man named Naaman and the Bible says that Naaman was the captain of the Syrian army which at that time was one of the greatest most powerful um, nations and armies. And the Syrian army actually had um, power to attack Israel and to actually take a lot of the Israelites captive. And so the Bible in Second Kings chapter 5, which we'll turn to in a moment, says that Naaman, Captain Naaman, was second in command to the entire um, nation, basically, because he was the commander. And the only other person more important than him was the king. So he had great position, he had great honor, he had great wealth, but he was a leper. And it's interesting when you look at the original Hebrew of that verse because it says he was a man of valor, you know, he was an honorable man, he was a great man and a leper. And it kind of is like this last thing that's kind of just thrown in there. And if you think about it, you could have all wealth, all honor, all position, but if you don't have health, what good is all that? You can't trade any of that. Especially at that time, leprosy was um, incurable. 
Today there are treatments for it. But at the time there was no cure. It was seen as highly contagious. And because leprosy is a disease that begins with blotches on your skin, it kind of starts in one place and then it starts to spread. And eventually what it does, it affects your nervous system. So then you lose the ability to feel pain, which we would think is a wonderful thing, right? But it's actually a good thing to feel pain because when you can't feel pain, as lepers uh, do, what happens is you know, you get a cut or you get close to the fire or you bump into something. And for us, we feel the pain and we make sure we treat it. But for lepers, they don't realize that they've injured themselves. So then the cut becomes infected and becomes so bad that extremities start falling off. And that's what used to happen to the lepers. And what happened is that because they're losing you know, fingers and toes and because they've got the skin blotches, it was a very um, difficult situation because not only are you sick, but you look really sick. And so people avoided you. And they would ostracize the lepers and they would have to live by themselves and fend for themselves, basically. If they had loved ones, maybe they would drop off some food for them down the rope, down to the caves, you know. But otherwise, they were isolated. And this, until they died. And this was Captain Naaman's fate. Even though he was second in command in the nation, once he had that one spot of leprosy, he knew, I'm a dead man. But fortunately for Naaman, God had another plan, even though he wasn't an Israelite. This is one of the few stories in the Bible, especially um, in the Old Testament times, where it really shows that God cares not just for the Israelites, not just for his chosen people, but for everyone. And in this story found in 2 Kings chapter 5, God had a plan for Captain Naaman. Because even before his leprosy developed, there was a young girl, a Jewish girl, who had been taken captive from Israel, who was serving as the servant for Captain Naaman's wife. And the story goes that she goes to the mistress when she knows, I guess the whole household knew now that Captain Naaman had leprosy. And this girl tells Captain Naaman's wife, if only the master were in Israel, there's a prophet there who can cure him. Now, I don't know about you, but if I heard that from a little girl, how many of us would take her seriously? And yet they take her very seriously, so seriously that not only do they just merely investigate, no, they go straight to the king of Syria and, and they say, I want to go over to Israel. Can you write me a letter? Because after all, Israel and Syria were warring nations. And so if the captain of the enemy army comes into your land, um, you would see that as an act of war. And so he basically goes to the king of Syria and says, write me a letter of introduction so that they know I'm here for peace. They know, you know my intent. So the king of Syria writes a letter to the king of Israel saying, I'm sending you my captain. Cure him of leprosy. The king of Israel gets this letter and he's really upset because he says, what does he expect me to do? How can I cure this man of leprosy? Am I God? He says. And he thinks that the Syrians are trying to pick a fight with him. But then there is that prophet in Israel named Elisha. And he goes to the king and he says, hey, there is a God. Send him to me. Right? So we're picking up the story there. Um, and I have it on the PowerPoint for you. Okay. Um, so this is where we pick up the story in chapter 5, verses 9 to 12. It says, Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. 
And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and ye shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. What made Naaman so angry? If you look at the historical context, as well as the, the verse itself, um, there's a few hints that let us know what made him so angry. First of all, he says, I expected him to come out and greet me. You see, Naaman was a man who was used to royal treatment. He was used to, wherever he went, you know, trumpets, fanfare, flattery, gifts, a lot of people coming and giving him lots of attention and making a big fuss about the fact that he was there. But here he comes to the conquered land of Israel, right? To the place where technically they should be very, very, um, what's the word, subservient and obsequious to him. And instead, Elisha doesn't even bother coming out. And this irks Naaman. His pride is wounded. This is not what he was expecting at all. And not only does Elisha not bother even coming out, he's told to go wash in the River Jordan seven times. And notice what he says in verse 11. It says, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. He expected Elisha to kind of do this hocus-pocus, you know, call on God's name and wave, and then boom, his leprosy would vanish. And wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if we could call on the name of Jesus, wave our hand over our belly fat, and it just disappeared? Or over our broken hearts and it just mended? Or over whatever addictions we have in our life and they just went away? Wouldn't it be nice if that's how prayer worked and that's how God worked? Sometimes, like Naaman, we have our own expectations of how change should happen. We have our own expectations of how God should work. And it is true that God is able to, and sometimes he does, heal or change or answer our prayers miraculously in one moment and we can stop something cold turkey. And sometimes uh, healing happens in, in one moment and God is able to do that. But most of the time, that is not how he operates. Most of the time, it takes time for change to happen, for healing to happen. And I would like to propose to you this afternoon that the reason is because God is not interested in only declaring us holy. He's interested in making us holy. He's not interested in just making us right. But he wants us to be people who love righteousness. He doesn't want to just make us change and give us change. He wants us to be people who choose to change. So it's an internal change of who we are and not just the external change of what we do. And that takes time and that requires more than just waving his hand over us 
saying the name of Jesus, and then all our problems going away. Naaman had driven his horses and his chariots. Can you imagine the entourage that he had with him? And he expected, and you know, he, he's got to look good in front of his soldiers and his servants, right? When he got to the door of Elisha, he expected something from Elisha that would give Naaman honor, that would give Naaman the opportunity to save face. And if you look at uh, what happens next, we, we see a little bit more of what's going on in Naaman's eye psychology. After he gets angry and he turns to go back, it says in verse 13, And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? Isn't it nice to have someone like that in your life who gives you good advice? (laughs) Can you imagine if he hadn't said anything for fear of losing his position? How the story would have ended and how Naaman would have gone back to Damascus And people would have asked, so what happened? Did you go? And he would have said, yeah, I went. I didn't like what I heard, and I came back. But the servant brings up this really logical, good point. Hey, if Elisha had told you to climb the biggest tower, kill the dragon, save the princess, wouldn't you have done it? Right? Wouldn't you have done something very heroic and worthy of your commander position in exchange for your healing? Wouldn't you have done it? And the answer is, yeah, he probably would have. He knows. The servant knows his master very well. And he says, here Elisha is asking you to do something very simple. Yeah, something that doesn't make sense. And yes, something that is distasteful to you, but a lot easier in actual action. And yet you're not willing to do it. And what it does is it goes to the heart of the issue, which is Naaman's pride. Naaman's pride. He wanted to be able to tell the story that he got the healing through some great action or through great reward. Um, If you go back to verse 5, it says, it's not on the screen, but basically Naaman takes with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. One of the commentaries said that this amount of money is more money than how much it cost to buy all of Samaria like the entire city. And here he comes with enough money to have rebought the whole land. Right? Naaman wanted to be able to say, yes, with my wealth, yes, with my power, yes, with my works, I was able to gain this healing. But here, Elisha and God is communicating to Naaman, it's not going to be through your power. It's not going to be through your wealth. It's not going to be through your work. It's going to be through faith and obedience in what I want you to do. And it's going to come through me addressing the heart of the issue, which is your pride. This servant, when he brings up this question, thankfully, is able to get Naaman to stop and reflect. And even though the text doesn't go into detail about what Naaman was thinking, the fact that Naaman then turns around and goes back to the river shows that it worked. Naaman realizes that You know what? His pride was not as important as the healing. That his own expectations were not as important as the possibility of the future and the life that he can have if he simply tries. We sometimes want God to do something huge and amazing or to ask us to do something huge and amazing. 
And we think that's going to bring about change in our lives. We think that's really what I need, you know. If, if I just go away to, you know, Cambodia and give my life to the poor for the rest of my life as a missionary, that's really what, what is going to allow me to live out the Christian walk. And that's really what's going to make me feel close to God. And perhaps if that is what God is calling you to do. But is it possible that God isn't asking us to do great heroic things in order to experience him? That perhaps in order to experience God and to experience healing and change in our spiritual lives, he's asking us to do the, the, the small, mundane, ordinary things like going to church or reading the Bible or being kind to our neighbors, right? The things that he has already asked us to do, the simple things, but we don't want to do those God, give us something big. Give us something great. Give us something that will make us then feel worthy of the change and the miracle and the healing. Perhaps God is simply looking for us to actually humbly accept that change isn't something that just teleports us to the top of a mountain, but that God is interested in training us to build our faith muscles, to actually exercise and to actually get up. And it's not really so much the height we climb, and it's not so much of a race to see how fast we can get there. It's more about the process of trusting our master guide, of, of, of building that process. And even if we fall, and even if we you know stumble, and even if we go back down, that, that's not so important so much as are we still walking with him? Are we still willing to try? Captain Naaman had leprosy, but I think sometimes we don't even realize that we have this spiritual blindness, this spiritual apathy, this spiritual laziness that keep us from actually obeying. Naaman had driven 160 kilometers to get to Elisha. And yet when Elisha says, go 30 kilometers over to this river, he gets angry. Could it be that sometimes... We don't want to do those small things that will really allow us to experience change because we can't even tell the difference right away. Can you imagine if Naaman, once he decides to turn the horse around, says, yep, I've made the decision. I'm heading towards the river. Where's the healing now? What if he had driven 20 kilometers and said, well, I don't see change? Or what if he got there and he saw how disgusting the Jordan River was because it's not the cleanest. It wasn't the best. And he said that. He was like, the rivers of Damascus are better than this. Or what if he took off his clothes, which, by the way, was a very shameful thing for him to do in the Eastern context. I mean, today, I mean, I guess even today, no one wants to see a guy get naked and get into the river. But especially back then, it was a huge shameful thing for, for an adult to take off his clothes in public, especially someone as high-standing as he was. It would be a very dishonorable thing. So what if he got there and he, as he starts stripping, he thinks to himself, this is ridiculous. This isn't going to work. This doesn't make sense. Or what if he dipped his toes and, oh, the water's too cold. Forget it. Right? Or he, he puts his feet in and he feels fish or leeches and then I would totally jump out of there immediately. Or what if he washed once, twice, three times, four, five, six times, and he sees absolutely no difference. And he thinks to himself, what's the point? And if he had stopped, what then? 
sometimes it's not just about placing ourselves in that humble place of willingness for God to change us, but it's also about persevering, which is sometimes the hardest thing that God could ask us to do. Sometimes I think if God just kind of asked me to do something huge, heroic once, you know, that almost is more kind of motivating, right? But if God says, I want you to read the Bible, pray, go to church, be kind to each other, forgive one another, those daily things, right? Oh, and you have to do it day in and day out, week in and week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, and, and yet you don't really feel different, you don't really see a whole lot of change, and yet to persevere, that is tough. I've been trying to get back in shape ever since Michael was born. And I got, my father-in-law was like, you need to exercise. So I signed up for gym membership back in March. Sadly to say, uh, even though it's quite expensive, I was going about, if it was a good week, I was going once, (laughs) which is really bad. And uh, I told myself, no, I need to go to the gym. I need to go to the gym. I need to exercise. But oh, it was so difficult. It's like a 10-minute walk from my place, right? And if I really wanted to, I could fit it into my schedule in the mornings or some, at some point. But every day it would pass and I would think, oh, it's so hard, I can't bring myself to do it. But was it really or is it because I really didn't want to go? <laughs> Sometimes it's, it's not, how should I put it? When Naaman um, was washing in the river, you know, for him it wasn't perhaps that long of a time. Washington times, I don't know how long it would have taken. But one thing was clear, that he had to wait until he was uh, washing himself the seventh time before he could actually see the change. And sometimes we give up on things like going to church, reading the Bible, because we think, oh, we read a little bit, oh, it's boring. So after you know, New Year's Day comes around, we make a resolution, maybe we'll do it for a little bit. And after a while, we just don't feel like it anymore. Right? Same thing with exercise or Um, any resolution, any desire to change, we think, I don't see the change. I don't feel the difference. Why bother? But is it possible that perhaps if we persevered, if we persevered, that before we know it, we actually would see the change? And maybe it'll take a little longer than we expect. If you go to Hebrews, it says in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Did you catch that word? It says, I want you to imitate. In other words, he said, fake it till you make it, right? This week, I resolved, you know what? I really do need to get back in shape, um... I was telling some of the girls a few weeks ago that I was about to come to church one Sabbath and got into one of the suits I hadn't worn in a long time, got into the car, and the skirt ripped. <laughs> and I realized at that moment, okay, if I don't make a change in my life, I actually might have to get a whole new wardrobe, and I don't want to do that. And so uh, this week, I was actually very motivated to exercise. And so Monday, I did Pilates. And then on Tuesday, I went to Zumba class. And I've never gone to Zumba class before in my life. I heard it was very good exercise. And I went. And my conclusion is that God did not give me the hips for Zumba. But I tried my best to fake it, right? I tried to follow the instructor as best as I could. I fumbled along. And 
by the end, I definitely got good exercise. I might have looked ridiculous in the process, but I definitely got to exercise. And in this, in this text, when Paul is saying, I want you to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised, he's not saying you have to have faith and patience. He's saying imitate people who have faith and patience. And guess what? As you imitate, as you place yourself in the environment and opportunity for change, the change has a chance. The change has a chance. But if you're not even willing to place yourself there, is for example, you know, um, a lot of people have, have have said, "Oh, I don't feel like going to church, and I don't want to be a hypocrite because if, I, I'm not, if I'm not really feeling it and I go, then you know, it's not wrong." But if they just stop going, how is that feeling of wanting to go ever going to come back? Right? It's possible it'll come back, but it's when you come and you come and you come, and one day you enjoy it. Your taste buds have, a, have an opportunity to change. The words, the songs, the fellowship, the community make a difference slowly but surely. And for Naaman, after the seventh time when he came out, if you go to the next slide, uh, actually there's another verse in Hebrews that I should read. It says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. I really like this passage because it just kind of reminds me of how little of a fight I put in. It just reminds me that Jesus is the one who actually struggled to the point of death. And that he's the one who actually paved the way and climbed that hill of Bogotha and died on the cross for me. And so in the mountain climbing analogy, yes, I have to be the one to go, but I'm not going alone. He's there to coach and encourage and mentor me along. And when I get tired, he carries me. And when I am utterly exhausted, he carries me on eagle's wings. And that's the promise that he provides for each one of us. That once again, it's not about the, the rate we climb. It's not about the height we climb. But it's just the fact that we try. And it's just about the fact that we want to be there with him. Going back to the story of Naaman, it says that he went down and dipped seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. It doesn't say that that one spot of leprosy that was on his body was gone. It says that whole, his whole flesh right, became restored like that of a little child. And if you've ever seen little children and how beautifully spotless their skin is, the really little ones. Can you imagine, Naaman didn't just receive healing. He was completely restored. He came back and his wife must have been like, wow, you look fantastic, right? Go back to Israel. Dip in that river again. Leprosy, healing from leprosy was what Naaman sought. But what he got was so much more. Not just restoration and, and this whole new uh, health, right? 
But in addition to that, he gained understanding of his own pride, and he gained understanding of the God of heaven. Um, in a moment, we'll go to the last verse. But I just want to point out this idea of being a new creation. It's the Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What does this mean? And we'll discuss this a little bit more, uh, hopefully, in our, during our discussion time. What does it mean to be a new creation? What does it mean that old things are gone and new things have come? In a parable that Jesus told, it says in Luke chapter 5, verse 36, No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. In other words, you know, I'm wearing a black skirt, and if I went out and bought a brown skirt, it'd be ridiculous if I took a patch, if there's a tear on this one, if I took a patch out of that new skirt and put it here. Because not only will this be ruined, but the new brown skirt will also be ruined, right? So Jesus is saying, look, you don't do that with fabric. And yet, we do that in our spiritual lives. We think, all right, I'm going to start devotions, morning devotions, tomorrow. But if we make that, we want to kind of put a band-aid, right? Or put a patch in in our lives. But if I'm going to bed late, and I'm, you know, thinking and doing all these other things, and then I go to bed and I still, and I don't even set the alarm, and I still expect to get up and actually have time to do my morning devotion before I go on with my day. It's just like putting a patch and thinking that that's going to work. Or if we say, I'm going to exercise, but then, once again, I'm not scheduling it in, not making that a priority, then, yeah, it's just, we, we throw out resolutions and we try to, put, get, uh, to gather new values or new habits, but our whole life, our whole worldview, our whole heart is still old. So what God is saying here is you have to surrender all of you. In the beginning, we saw that video of the poem. He says, all of me, not just part of me, right? all of me. And so when we say, God, I surrender my entire heart to you, you can have my whole time, my whole priorities, and then give it back to me in the order that you want me to do it. And forgive me of all my sins. And once we are able to humble ourselves like Naaman did and say, not my will, but your word. Not my feelings, but your will. And to actually allow God to give us that new chance every day to follow through with the simple things. Then we can live like we are new creation on a daily basis. This is the result. It says that Captain Naaman returned to the man of God, Elisha. He and all his aides and came and stood before him and he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And so Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods but to the Lord. And he takes some earth to take back to Damascus to set up an altar for God there. You see, the miracle, the greatest miracle, was not just the healing of leprosy. The greatest miracle was that an idol-worshipping Syrian commander who was an enemy to Israel decided to worship 
the God of heaven, decided to worship Jehovah God. That was the greatest miracle of all. And so my prayer for all of us this afternoon, including myself, is that we would humble ourselves and open ourselves to place ourselves in environments of change, to give God the opportunity to change us, and that as we simply trust and obey the little things that God has asked of us, and as we persevere by his love, that we too can truly echo the words of this hymn. I hate the song, but I love the lyrics. The melody is really weird. But the hymn goes like this. It says, It took a miracle to put the stars in place. It took a miracle to hang the world in space. But when he saved my soul, cleansed and made me whole, it took a miracle of love and grace. My prayer is that we would experience not just the miracles of answers to prayers, but ultimately the miracle of being able to express adoration and worship to the one true God. Would you create in me a clean 
Oh God, restore in me the joy of Your salvation. Would You create in me a clean heart? Oh God, restore in me the joy of Your salvation. Father God, we want to thank you that you're very patient with us, and we pray that as we place ourselves in your hands and in uh, environment of change, I pray that in time we would persevere and continue to build our relationship with you. And I want to pray for all those who are sick, um, Andrew, Naomi, Shendon, Roy, Micah, and for whoever else couldn't come today, I pray that you would uh, enable all of us as a church family to grow together, um, change together, to love each other, and to encourage each other through this um, daily walk with you. And I just pray, Father God, that whenever we feel discouraged, we would remember that you're there, never um, leaving us, and always there to encourage and to bless us. And we thank you for your great mercy that's new every morning. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.